At the age of 13, Dennis Kinlaw responded to a message by Henry Clay Morrison on entire sanctification. His encounter with Jesus Christ at the altar of Indian Springs Holiness Camp Meeting transformed his life. We hope you enjoy this message on holiness from Dr. Kinlaw. Without any question, the most inexplicable event in all of human history is the crucifixion. When you think of similar events like Socrates' death or the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, you still find that uh, it is more difficult to explain on any rational ground why Jesus Christ was crucified. I was in a pastor's conference once in which uh, one of the other speakers was an existentialist who boiled his faith down basically to about three propositions. One of them was that life is tragic. If you want any evidence, just see what happened to Jesus. Two, life is absurd. If you want any evidence for that, just notice that the best man that ever lived ended up on a cross. And his third conclusion was that God's can't do anything about it. God's in the same mess we're in because if he could, he would have done something for him. And if he wouldn't do anything for him, then what could you expect him to do for us? But how do you explain the crucifixion of Jesus? When a man could spend his life in the ministry that he did, and you come to the end of it, and the church and the public say, we'd rather have a murderer given to us, a man named Barabbas released into our midst, We'd rather live with him than live with this one who is called Jesus. Now, if that says anything, if it says something about life, it certainly says something about you and me, about mortal men, sinful men. Now, it's because of this, I think, that the theologians are so clear, classical orthodox theologians are so clear in their conviction that One of the cardinal doctrines of Christianity is what we speak of as original sin. And if you start in the beginning of the church and run down through the history of the church, you will find that the great theologians had a firm commitment to it. No other way to explain human life and the human beings who live those lives. Whether it's an Augustine, and we speak of Augustinianism and his pessimism about human nature, or whether it is Luther or Calvin, one of the marks of the Reformation was the, was the thorough emphasis upon the total depravity of man. Sometimes Methodists tend to think that Wesley had a different point of view. But if anything, Wesley was almost stronger on original sin than Luther or Calvin. You will remember that the longest treatment that he ever gave to any theological subject was on the doctrine of original sin, And his comment about it was that if a man does not believe in the doctrine of original sin, he is thereby a pagan. And if he does believe in the doctrine of original sin, he is that far Christian. Now, what is the essence of it? It seems to me that there are two things. Let me read a passage from Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 17. Now, this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, as the nations of the earth do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, 
they have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. You did not so learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there are two aspects of this. There are two facets to it that I want to mention. One of them, Paul, very explicit about, and he develops it in other places as well. He says, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. And he says that because alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, to their own appetites and to their own passions. Now, it seems to me that at the heart of it, there are two facets, and one of them is what he speaks about is spiritual blindness, and the other is a certain hardness that comes, a callousness, which I suspect is closely intimately related to arrogance and to pride and to self-will. The idea being that we want to be autonomous, we can live without God, we will run our own lives. It's interesting what words reflect sometimes when you break them down into their original elements. Take the word autonomy, for instance, or the adjective autonomous. The auto part comes from the Greek uh, pronoun autos, which means oneself, a reflexive pronoun. And the nomos part comes from the word law. So the autonomous person is the person for whom his self is his law. He makes his own law. He decides what he's going to do, or he or she. The person finds in himself his final authority. Now that is the essence, I think, of the biblical teaching on our sinfulness, that we have taken our lives into our own hands and shut God out, and since God is the source of all light, it is little wonder that there is darkness, that there is blindness within us. And so we sing in Christian circles, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Now how blind are we? We are blind enough that when God came, we didn't recognize him. Now, I don't know where, where you would go to find a more perfect evidence of our spiritual blindness and intellectual blindness that when incarnate truth and incarnate God came among us, we found him to be an enemy and one to be disposed of, and we called him demonic. I've been working my way through the Gospel of John for three or four years, and it's fascinating to me the way these themes are developed in the Gospels, but the Gospel of John is dramatic in its presentation of it. He comes as the worker of merciful acts. He comes as the, workers of acts, as the worker of acts of power and as the teacher of truth. And you will remember that uh, he reaches out to meet all manner of needs. Take, for instance, when he finds a great multitude of people that had followed him out into the wilderness, and there they are, 
hungry and away from sources of supply. And he turns to his disciples and said, let's feed them. And they look at him and smile and say, Master, how are you going to do that? There are no stores around, no supply for food. And if there were, how would we pay for it? We don't have the money. And he says, what do you have? They said, we have a boy here who has five rolls and two fish. And he says, bring them to me. And he takes the five rolls and the two fish and begins to break them and feeds the thousands of people. Now, the people who were following him were following him because they wondered if he was the Messiah. And when he fed them with bread and fish, they said, this is great. This is the kind of person we've been looking for. He can meet our, solve our economic problems and he can, ha- he can take care of our needs and he can give us what we need and what we want. And so they said, surely he is the Christ. We will crown him king. And Jesus turned immediately and began to look for a place to escape and disappeared. Now, why did he disappear? He had come to be crowned as the Messiah. Now the public is ready to make him the Messiah. But the only thing worse than not knowing God is thinking you know God when you don't. The only thing worse than not having God is thinking you have God when you don't have God. And when you have a false God in your mind and heart and imagination, that is the supreme uh, blindness and the supreme tragedy. Now, you will remember that uh, they chased him the next day across the sea. And when they found him, they said, uh, why did you leave us? We are ready to crown you as the king. And he said, no, he said, "Uh, you misunderstood me. You saw the bread and fish and ate the bread and fish, but you didn't see the sign. What interesting language. You saw the bread and the fish, but you didn't see what they symbolized. And what you need is not bread and fish, but what you need is the bread of life, my body and my blood. Now, a very subtle thing here. You know, most of us would much rather have his gifts than to have him. And when the choice comes between the gifts of God and God, we're blind enough that we'll take the gifts and think we've got all we need. And so they said, give us the bread and fish and we're content. He said, oh no, I would be the deceiver of all deceivers if I gave you the bread and the fish and let you think that you had what you need. I am the one you need, not the bread and the fish, but the bread that comes down from heaven. You need me and you don't recognize who I am. And they said, these are strange sayings. And so they turned and they left him. And his closest disciples said, "Uh, we don't understand either. But they said, to whom shall we go? You obviously are the ones that have the words of eternal life. We don't stay because we understand you, but we stay because we don't know where else to go. Now, uh, that is the way they received him in terms when he spoke of being the bread of life. But the more interesting one, is when uh, he gave his sermon that we speak of is on the good shepherd in John 10. And he said, I am the good shepherd. Now everybody knows what you keep sheep for, what a shepherd keeps sheep for. Shepherd have been keeping sheep since the beginning of time. And they've kept them for two purposes. You keep sheep 
in order to in order to eat them and in order to wear them. And so a good shepherd is a good shepherd who takes good care of his sheep so he can eat them and so he can wear them and when he wears them they'll be good clothing. And he comes along and says I'm the good shepherd. Will I take care of my sheep tenderly? Yes. But I don't take care of my sheep so I can eat them and wear them. I take care of my sheep so they can eat me and wear me. And they said, he's got a devil in him. That's an astounding passage. I wish I knew how to preach that right. I wish I knew how to preach it. I wish somebody could preach it universally. God comes and says, I've come to give you myself. And we say, that's the devil. God, and we see the demonic. Because, you see, we're after his gifts, not him. And when he comes to give us himself, we shut him out and say, that's the devil. John 10, 19 says, they said, he has a devil in him. And John 10.31 says they picked up stones to stone him. And John 19, they crucified God. Now there's the picture biblically of how blind, not pagan Gentiles and not just uh, uh, first century Jews, every man, every woman untouched by grace has done exactly the same thing. You know, uh, there's a passage in, in Isaiah 59. I wish I knew it well enough to quote it. But he tells about what has happened. He said, uh, is my arm shortened that my, I cannot save? Or is my ear heavy that I cannot hear? No, he says, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And the end result is that justice has perished in the streets. And we grope in the middle of the day for the for a wall looking for some kind of security, it is a passage that I am sure is the basis for the origin of a line in Nietzsche when Nietzsche talks about man's state as being so dark that we need to light the lamps at noon. You will remember that John 18 says when they went out to arrest him, they took lanterns and torches. What a picture of man when he goes to find the light of the world that he needs lanterns and torches and then misses him. The fascinating thing in the Hebrew and the Old Testament is that God dwells in deep darkness. And the Hebrew has a special word for that deep darkness. It's interesting that the source of all light Biblically is deep darkness. I suspect it is a reflection of our capacity to receive light. And when we see the fullness of light, we are blind enough and blinded enough that we think of it as unmitigated darkness. So when he came, we missed him. Now God's problem then is to get him, get us to see what he's like. We tend to, when he comes, find in him an enemy. Have you read uh, Francis Thompson's uh, poem, The Hound of Heaven? I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. 
I fled him down the labyrinth in ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him and under running laughter. Now, why did he flee? He heard these footsteps and knew, and sensed the presence and knew that it was an enemy, the enemy with a capital E, and he must flee. Fled him, I love these lines, in the midst of tears I hid from him. Fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. It's amazing how we use our intellects to hide from God and to build our securities to protect us from God. No greater, no greater manifestation of the blindness of man than in the intellectual centers of the world. We, uh, we flee from him down the labyrinth and ways of our own minds and in the midst of tears we hide from him and under running laughter. Elsie and I were recent, just this past weekend or two weeks, just 10 days ago at Ocean Grove in New Jersey and the thought that came to me as we walked the beaches there at Asbury Park and saw the the life there, you know, people running from him, hiding from him under running laughter. We flee him and laugh to let the world think we're secure when we are really running from the one who is our only hope. But talk, think for a moment about that light that we do not know how to handle it. You will remember that when Moses came down from the mountain, he had to put on a veil because his face shone so that people could not, could not receive even the reflection of the glory of God in the face of Moses. Now that is holiness. But the, one, of the most, one of the most beautiful illustrations to me of the problem of fallen man understanding God and a holy God revealing himself to fallen man is in the very concept of the holy. Visions of holiness. And it brought back some studies of years ago in terms of the Hebrew word kadesh, which is in kadosh, the words for holy and holiness in the Bible. I once turned to the book of Genesis and thought, here is the seedbed of the, of the scripture. What does it have to say about holy? And I found that in the Old Testament, there are very few people that are called holy. But in the book of Genesis, there is one, and she's a prostitute. And so Judah says to his servant, uh, take this kid and go down to the crossroads and you'll find a holy woman and give her the kid and get my signet back and my staff because she permitted me to have sex relations with her yesterday, a prostitute. And a prostitute in Canaan is a holy woman. It's interesting that in the first section of the Bible, holy people are supposed to be killed. You read the book of Deuteronomy, now it doesn't come through in the English because, say, the, NIV, the RSV says, if you meet a sacred prostitute or if you meet a homosexual priest, you kill them. But the Hebrew of these words, is, or the Hebrew of this is, if you meet a holy man, you kill him. Or if you meet a holy woman, you kill him. Because a holy woman or a holy man in Canaan was devoted to the service of the gods of Canaan and they served them in adultery and fornication and sodomy and homosexuality. Now that's the way the concept of holy begins in the Bible. And then you come to the end of the book of Revelation and it says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. 
He that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. And you feel a change has taken place in the course of those uh, books. And it has. Very interesting how it takes place. It takes place by taking that word which is used of a religious person in Canaan and is the exact opposite of everything that later Scripture indicates as the holy and begins to use it in reference to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. The first place in the Old Testament where it's used with its subsequent connotation is in Exodus 3. It's when Moses is on the backside of the desert tending sheep, and he sees a bush that burns, and it is not consumed. It stays green while it flames, and it stays green while as he draws near, he feels the heat from it. And then he hears out of the midst of that bush that won't be consumed, though it burns, a voice saying, Moses, take off your shoes, because the ground you're standing on is ground of holiness. It's holy ground. Now, from that point on, That word, Kadesh, begins to be associated with the Lord God. It is used of the days that you worship him, the Sabbath and holy convocations. It's used of the persons who lead in his worship, the priests. It's used of the garments that the priests wear. It's used of the crown that the priest wears on his head. It's used of the oil with which they anoint the priest. It's used of the sacrifices that the priest makes for you. It's used of the sacrificial flesh that is burned on the altar, or that is cooked in of which you partake. It is used of the altar itself. It is used of the gifts that go on it. But then it is used of the place where the tabernacle is pitched, and that's called the holy place. And you go through the first room of the tabernacle, and it's called the holy place. And then behind the double veil is what is called the most holy place. And the most holy place, the holiest of holies, is the place where Yahweh himself dwells, and Israel begins to get the idea that the source of true holiness is in Yahweh, the Lord God alone, and nothing is holy except as it is committed to him and draws a a change in its nature and its use from its relationship to him. So in the Old Testament, it becomes a supreme word once used for gross sin is the supreme word for the Lord God. I went through the book of Psalms to notice how the word holy is used. And note, it's used of the temple because Yahweh dwelt there. It's used of the holy hill on which the temple was built, in which Yahweh dwells. It is used of heaven, the holy heavens where Yahweh dwells. It is used of the article, the holy article, the word that comes out of the presence of God. There is the holy habitation, but not because Israel dwells there or the priests, but it is because Yahweh dwells there. The holy mountains, and they're holy because the Lord God dwells in them. And holy oil, the anointing oil that runs down the beard of the priest, as you will remember in one of the Psalms, that passage, how blessed when men, brethren, dwell together in unity. It's used of the holy name, it's name of God. It's used of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. In, in Psalm 51, it is used of God himself in direct address where it says, Thou art the Holy One, and where it says, He is the Holy One, and where finally God speaks and says, I am the Holy One. Now, if you go through the, uh, if you go through the Old Testament, you will find 
that it is always, when it is used in a right sense, used related to the Lord God. I was fascinated by one of the 20th century theologians, and he's not the only one who has said this, Emil Bruner, who said, sometimes we think of holiness as an attribute of God. But he said, no, holiness is not an attribute. Holiness is not something God has. Now he says his omnipotence is an attribute. His ubiquity, his omnipresence, that is an attribute. His uh, omniscience, his all knowledge, his wisdom, that's an attribute. He is the wise one. But Emil Brunner said holiness is not an attribute. It is his nature. It is what he is. And so you get in the Old Testament where he speaks and says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I can never share in his omnipotence. I can never share in his omniscience. I can never share in his ubiquitousness or many of the other attributes that are his. But the incredible thing is that God, the Holy One, speaks and says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And the scripture indicates that we are to share in that, in his nature, not in his power, not in his wisdom in, in the full sense, but we are to, in his infinity, in his infinitude, we do not share. We do not share in his sovereignty. We do share. We have through the blood of Christ in his holiness. And so he speaks in Exodus 19 and says, you're to be a holy people. You're to be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. And in Leviticus 11 and 19 and 20, he says, be ye holy for I am holy. I was fascinated by the fact that in the Old Testament, there are only a handful of occasions, less than six, I think, where Holy is ever used in, in the right sense in reference to human beings. In 2 Kings 4, there is a passage about Elisha. He stopped to visit a family in Shunem, and he stopped often, and they would feed this prophet of God. And one day, his, the wife turns to the husband and says, let's fix a special room for him. This holy man, that's the first time a person is rightly called, holy is used in the good sense of a human being in the Old Testament. You come to the 16th Psalm, and the 16th Psalm contrasts two groups of people in the world, the holy ones, and then those who seek their own will. You remember what we said about autonomy? Those who seek their own interests, their own will, what they want. They seek another than God, and another than God's will, and they are the unholy ones. But apart from that, those two, and perhaps three other passages, nowhere in the Old Testament is this word used of human beings. But what's the content of it? There are three stages in the Revelation that are interesting to me. The first is the Old Testament when it says there, that's who he is. He's the Holy One, Yahweh. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The supreme word to describe him. Then Jesus comes, and the angel says to Mary, The one that is to be born of you is the Holy One. You will remember that the devils in Mark 1 said, We know who you are. You are the Holy One. And Peter 
in the third chapter of Acts, stood up and says, you denied the Holy One whom God sent, and you chose a murderer in preference to the Holy One. Now, you see, it's used in the Old Testament to describe God, the remote one. It's used in the Gospels to describe, describe the one who came and dwelt among us. He is incarnate holiness. There we see it, the Holy One. But then you come to stage three, and it's astounding. You come to the epistles. Take Romans 1. To all God's beloved who are called to be holy. One. Because that's what the word saint, hagioi, hagios, or hagioi means. So Paul writes to these people in Romans and uses the same word, which in the Old Testament is too sacred to be used of a human being to any extent, and uses of all the believers in Rome. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To those who are made holy in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? To those who are made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or take the beginning of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the holy ones who are in Achaia. And you come to Ephesians, he's a little different when he writes to the Galatians because they had wandered from their faith and backslidden. But he turns to the Ephesians in one one and says to the holy ones who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. And now you find it is used of every believer. So that what is used exclusively of Yahweh is now used of every believer. Why? Because you will remember the thrust that he wants to renew us in the image of the one that created us. And we are to be made like him. Now, if we are to be conformed to the image of the Son, if we are to have his nature within us, it will not be something that we possess in ourselves. It will come out of our relationship to him. As his life comes into us and as he lives through us, there will be a transformation that takes place in us. Now, what's the nature of it? There are two elements to it. And... Uh, they are, they are double facets of that, of this one thing. There's no question that, that one of them is in terms of what we speak of as righteousness, moral righteousness, the moral and the ethical. It is illustrated so beautifully in the Old Testament that when you find where God dwells, where does he dwell? He says, I want you to be my people and I want to live in your midst. And when he says, where will I dwell? He says, you build a tabernacle. There will be the curtains around the outer court. There will be the altar, the great altar where they burned the, in, the, burned the sacrifices in, in the court. Then beyond that, there will be the structure. There will be the holy place. And beyond that, the holy of holies. Now, you will remember it was built in courts. And a Gentile could come so far, and a Jewish woman could come so far, and a Jewish man could come so far, and a Levite could come so far, and a priest could come so far, and the chief priest was the only one who could go the whole way. Now, I used to read that, and I thought, man, 
Doesn't he want us to get close to him? Does he build these obstacles to keep us distant? What a contrast to the New Testament where he says, Come unto me, all ye that labored and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or when you come to the last chapter of Revelation where he says, The Spirit and the Bride, speaking for God, say, Come. Whosoever will, let him come. Why these obstacles? I used to think, is it because he doesn't want us to get close to him? That's very different from the pagan temples of Canaan and of Egypt and of Babylon where the gods were available and you could carry them in your hands and you could use them and place them where you wanted them. I had a missionary friend who told me about he was in a Roman Catholic home in Latin America 30 years ago. And he said uh, he noticed the saint, the patron saint in the home, had his face turned to the wall in the corner. And he said, why in the corner and his face to the wall? Well, he said, that the, the father said, that's the patron saint for courtship. And my daughter's love affair isn't going too well. So she's got the saint in the corner, face in the corner for it. And that's the way pagans could use their gods. Conveniently, God places himself remote, distant. Why? Not because he didn't want people to not to find him but because he was afraid they'd find a substitute. The great problem is not that we will get to God too easily. The great problem is that we will find what we think is God and be content with what we think is God, and we will have missed him. So God says, I will dwell there right in your midst, and where will I dwell? I will dwell between the cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, which is a box covered with a plate of gold, and inside the box, the Ark of the Testimony, inside of that are the tablets of the covenant, and what are they? They are the Ten Commandments. It's interesting that when God meets man biblically, the law is always present. I think of what Mary was saying this afternoon, that China doesn't have Sinai in its background. And of course it doesn't. It doesn't have Sinai in its background because God is not in its background. And wherever you find God, you find the law. In the New Testament, you will remember that Matthew begins with the Sermon on the Mount. God in Christ and the law being given to us, the Holy One. That's the reason that when he comes to us, there's always that consciousness of our sinfulness. Isaiah, woe is me because I'm undone. Because I'm unclean. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the Lord and I'm undone. I love the story in Luke 5 of the incredible catch of fish, the miraculous catch of fish. And when the boat is so full of fish when Peter's already had told Jesus a little before, we fished all night and caught nothing. You're a carpenter. We're the fishermen. There are no fish here. And Jesus says, drop out and cast your nets. And the boat was filled. And Peter fell on his knees. And what came out of his mouth is fascinating. He didn't talk about God's power in Christ. He said, depart from me, Lord, because I am a I am a sinful man. I don't know what there is. I don't think there is anything in fish that would make a person conscious of his sinfulness. But there is something in the Holy One 
even when he, what he's demonstrating is simply sovereignty. It's not his sovereignty that makes you conscious of your sinfulness. It is his holiness that makes you, like Peter saying, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. You're the holy one and I'm not and we belong apart. But the one I love best is the story of the woman taken in adultery. I don't think that those Pharisees brought her so joyously because they were such criminals and so mean. But I think it was because they'd never met anybody that made them feel, feel guilty before. Because you remember a Pharisee didn't normally feel guilty. He's the kind who made other people feel guilty. He told you how many days a week he fasted, and you said, well, I don't do that. He told you how much time he spent working on Scripture, and uh, he told you about his tithing, what, 30% of his income? A Pharisee, a good Pharisee, seldom felt guilty. It was the other people around him that he enjoyed making feel, feel guilty. And then they met Jesus, and people who had never felt any guilt felt guilt. And they found a woman in adultery. And they said, you know, wish you were here. Next to her, we're bound to look halfway decent. And so they dragged her into his presence and said, look at her, Lord. And Jesus looked down at the ground and then looked back and said, let's get back to you and me. The one of you that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the text says from the oldest Pharisee down, they began to sneak out. You know, uh, it's awesome when people meet God. The natural, the, the, the automatic reaction is when they meet the true God is guilt, conviction. I got a telephone call one day from a lady. She was so flipping over the telephone, I almost hung up on her. And then I thought, that's not her normal way. She's in trouble. So before I hung up, I said, Betty, I'll be there in a moment. Five minutes, I was punching her doorbell. And I walked in and looked at her and said, what's wrong? She looked back at me and said, I'm the vilest, filthiest piece of human flesh on the face of the earth. I said, Betty, you're a part of the board of the best example of Gothic architecture in this part of America and active on it. She said, yes, but I'm the filthiest, vilest piece of human flesh on the face of the earth. And it's been 18 years, and I thought it was all gone. I thought I had forgotten it, and I hoped everybody else had. I said, what brought it back? She said, that lousy Bible class of yours. Bible class on Genesis. wasn't the Bible class. The amazing thing is you can bury your sins in the remotest recesses of your mind, your subconscious or whatever it is, and think they're all gone. You get in his presence and they'll be as fresh as if you committed them 10 minutes ago. Can you imagine what the judgment day is going to be like? It will be the concentrated guilt of the totality of your transgressions, all summed up in a moment in his presence. The Holy One. Have you ever really been under guilt? Tears you up. 
I noticed that uh, a professor can deal with a student when he's caught him red-handed cheating and the fellow's rather distraught. And that's a sinner dealing with a sinner. You can multiply that. Well, can you imagine what it's going to be? Time doesn't take away our sins. They're not done with the doing. They're there in our relationship with him. He's the holy one and we're the unholy ones. Now, uh, that's, that's the first facet. The second facet is interestingly enough, the first seems to repel us. We want to run from him. We flee him because of the guilt. The second, it seems to me, the one that ought to draw us to him. And yet, I think it draws us in a measure and repels us too. And that is the self-giving love that is in Christ. You see, that's the thing that the Jews could not believe about Jesus, and you and I can't either, that he came to give himself. You think of the figures that are used, say, in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist says, there he is. He's the one. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What do you have a lamb for? You only have a lamb for two reasons. To eat and to wear. <laughs> and so he says, there's God and he's come and we think God's coming to consume us. And God comes so we can consume him. Maybe strange language, but what he means is he wants his life to become ours. And so he says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. My father loves me because I lay down my life for my sheep. The shepherd who keeps his sheep so he can die for it. He wants to give his life to his sheep, not his gifts himself. But the most poignant may be the uh, bread. I'm the bread. Do you know what you have to do with grain in order for it to be bread? For grain to become bread and bread to be useful, it has to be crushed, ground, baked in the fire, and then consumed in a consumption where it loses its identity and becomes the life of another. And if the grain has any autonomy, it never becomes bread. I suspect that's as good a picture of what Jesus meant when he said, if you keep your life, you lose it. Because all there will be is just you forever. That's what hell will be. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will find it. And you'll find your life in another and you'll find your fulfillment there. And that'll be bliss in heaven. And that's how diverse the world's way of thinking and and the biblical way of thinking is. If I keep my life and take care of my interests and see that I'm handled well and I get what I deserve and uh, get what I need and uh, above all take care of my rights, that's the wise man in our world. Jesus comes along and says, you need to give up your life to where you can be crushed, ground, baked, <laughs> and consumed. But when you do, it'll always be fruitful. And that's what holy love is.
We find our lives not in ourselves, but we find it in another. That's not easy to see. It takes the Holy Ghost to get a person to where he sees it, to where he's willing to turn loose his life and let God have it and do with it what he pleases. It uh, takes a work of God for us to come to the place where we can surrender ourselves to him. And it takes a work of God when we've given up our lives for God to resurrect it in the way he wants to with his life dominating it. And then that word holy is applicable to us. But that's uh, that's the gospel, isn't it? I notice that the people whose lives have been most profoundly touched by Christ end up giving their lives for other people. It always happens. I stood in Macau next to the grave of uh, Robert Morrison. And I never, you know, as I've traveled, one of the things that's interested me is the things I never expected to impress me, move me profoundly. And the things I thought would be very impressive didn't touch me at all. I had went through the Holy Land on one trip. I was amazed at the holy sights that left me cold and offended. About as angry as I've gotten is the merchandising of one or two of those so-called holy places. I didn't come out reverently or blessed. I came out uh, uh, deeply distraught. But I stood side of that slab of marble and said, Robert Morrison. And I remember a man, a Britisher, who's who received Christ in his life, decided to give his whole life to Christ. God laid it, in, it laid China on his heart, and so he went as close as he could get. He couldn't get into China, so he got to Macau. He couldn't be a missionary because you couldn't get in to be a missionary. So he worked for the East India Company, and the East India Company had no use for missionaries, were absolutely hostile to them. And so he lived his life in an atmosphere of hostility. Had to work all day as an accountant. And at night in his little room, he started translating the Bible and translated the whole of the Bible from beginning to end in Chinese. Occasionally, you could make trips into China. But that man laid the groundwork for what's happening in China today. I stood there, thought of his rejection. He spent his life rejected. And when he died, they didn't know how to bury him because the Chinese wouldn't take him. And Macau was Roman Catholic, and he was a Protestant. So his body was kept out of the ground for days, not even any place to bury him. No place, not even for his body. And finally, a friend persuaded the Roman Catholic Church to sell a piece of ground just big enough to put Robert Morrison's body in it. And so that little piece of ground in that Roman Catholic cemetery doesn't belong to the cemetery. It belongs to Robert Morrison and his buried dead. But what about the man who went to the Patagonians? Britisher, and the British didn't send him supplies. And he starved to death. Nobody even remembers his name now. But they found his journal when they did go to send him something. And in his journal, he was writing when he died. 
And when the pen trailed off, he was writing, Oh, the goodness of God to me. It's interesting what one person calls goodness, the other person doesn't, isn't it? That's the difference between the world's perspective and the perspective of the holy heart. The God who wants to give himself. And he's looking for people who will give themselves. But what people it makes. One of the things I love about them is, the most of them that I've seen have great senses of humor. And they have great joy. Sat across the table from a doctor in Kenya. Southern Baptist fellow. One eye completely white. No pupil, no iris, nothing. Just white. I looked at him and said, Sam, you trained for surgery. What happened to the eye? I said, I had a kid in my lap working on him. And he coughed in my eye. I got an infection, lost it. I said, what about the surgery? You can't operate with one eye. You got to have depth perception. I said, you can always find somebody who can cut. I said, Sam, what are you doing? He pulled himself together and looked up joyously and he said, I'm translating the New Testament into a language in the Sudan that, that 86,000 people speak and there's nobody else in the world to do it if I don't do it now. He said, you see, he knew if he took one away, I could see better. Now tell me about his retirement plan. And tell me about his summer home. <laughs> tell me about the benefits of all that. You know what the benefits are? the privilege of living your life for somebody else, in somebody else, and through somebody else. I think that's what made Jesus so disconcerting to people because it's the absolute opposite of everything that's natural about us. We're interested in our well-being. And that's the reason it's so hard. It takes grace to come to that point of total surrender full surrender. We won't do it in the flesh. No man will give up the right to himself in the flesh. It'll take divine surgery. I prayed with a guy the other night. I said to him, what do you want? What is God saying to you? He said, I need to surrender. I said, are you ready to do that? Well, he said, I know I ought to. I said, are you ready to surrender now? He said, well, I know I need to. I said, are you ready to surrender now? He said, I can say it with my lips, but I can't mean it with my heart. And I said, you need to ask him to change your heart. And he said, so he prayed. And as he prayed, asking God to change his heart, he broke. And he said, why does it hurt so? Why is it so painful. Why can't I say with my heart what I'm saying with my lips? I said, it's all of grace. Because the essence of sin is self-interest. And sin dies hard. And the essence of holiness is loving concern beyond yourself. Holy concern beyond yourself. I was interested that uh, he finally 
I started to say he finally broke through. No, God finally pulled him through. Miracle of grace. And when he did, he sighed all over. You could feel him tremble. He'd trembled before otherwise. It's been a long time since I prayed with anybody like that. But he sort of trembled with relief. And he said, may I sit up? <laughs> As if I had anything to do with it. And he sat up on the altar. And when he did, he looked up at me just like that and said, could I be baptized? <laughs> I said, right here. He said, right here and now. And I said, yeah. So we went and got some water. You know what baptism symbolizes? Death to sin. And what's the essence of sin? Self-interest. Resurrection to righteousness and true holiness. Living beyond ourselves. Wherever you see it, you love it. You may be terrified of it in yourself, but when you see it in anybody else, it's beautiful. Every husband would like his wife that way. Every wife would like her husband that way. But it's interesting how we think he's their enemy when he says, give me yourself. Notice the conclusion of Francis Thompson's poem. God has chased him. Now he has him where at the end God is speaking to him. All which I took from thee, we're so afraid he'll take something good away from us, a pleasure, a bauble, a joy, a love. All which I took from thee, he says, I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. And I'll give you back all the things that you thought I'd taken from you. But listen to this. Halts by me that footfall. As the Holy One stands side of him, he feels a shadow fall across him, and his mood is gloom. Listen to this. Is my gloom after all? Shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly. We think he reaches out his hand to grab and take. And he reaches out his hand to caress and to love. And as he reaches out his hand, the shadow we think is gloom. And it's our friend. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. And that's what he wants me. That's what he wants you to do. Let me ask you. Any self-interest that needs to be purged? He alone can purge it. And until it's purged, we're not the whole people he wants us to be. Only he can do it. His life becoming ours and his life filling us. Let's bow our heads together. He came to Galilee and to Nazareth, to Judea, to Jerusalem, to give himself to us.
so that then we might be freed from our sin and our self-interest to give ourselves to him. His glory was that he gave himself for us, and our greatest glory is being possessed by him. It may be that there's somebody in our midst before we close tonight who says, you know, God's been dealing with me a long time, pursuing me. I I know that my motives have been mingled and there's been a lot of self-interest in me that I've never really laid before him and asked him to purge. I'd like to be free to be holy of the Lord's. I'd like to be free. Only he can free me to be that. And I'd like that. I want him to free me to where I can be fully his, wholly his.